you would, take out the Word of God and turn to Acts chapter 6. We continue our sermon series through the book of Acts, and uh, today we find ourselves in Acts chapter 6, and uh, we're going to move through this passage which deals with the topic of deacons and Uh, A lot of our structure and the way that we function was decided and um, we made decisions about those things while we were under the authority of Ashland Avenue Baptist Church. We we do have deacons that serve here uh, and we do have a structure and a polity that we go by. There there is a day coming in the near future where we as a church will uh, stop and recognize that structure, that authority. Uh, We won't decide on it again, but we will celebrate that God has provided us deacons and pastors, and we will celebrate the way the church functions. Uh, One of the things that we're going to do on that day is also covenant together uh, as members of Ashland. We wanted to do that in the month of February, but as we've dug into our roles, we we realize that it's going to take just a little bit more time to get all that together. There are a lot of people that want to join our church before we do that. And so uh, we need a little bit more time to get our roles right uh, before we do that. But that is coming. Uh, and I make mention of that to say when we get to the book of Acts, we, we think about Acts in almost this um, super Christian fairy tale. Uh, and throughout Acts, what we see over and over is the Spirit is providing structure also for the church. Uh, That the Spirit in this almost wild and crazy way is moving in and taking the gospel to the ends of the earth and, and it almost seems out of control and yet over and over the Spirit is showing us that the church needs structure that the church is to function a certain way. And we see that as God's gift. We see that as God's design. And in the chapter that we're looking at today, we see that very clearly uh, in the role of deacons. And so if you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's Word, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. And be mindful that this is the Word of Christ, that this is um, what we need, that this is what we need more than bread, what we need more than water. We need the words of Christ to be spoken to us by the power of His Spirit so that we would be different, so that we would have joy in being conformed to His image. Hear the word of Christ. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenist arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, 
and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Oh God, I pray that we would see the glory of Christ as we see these men first appointed to serve, to lead in serving. And God, as we look at this passage of Scripture and we see uh, that your church appoints servant leaders, I pray that we would never say they're just servants. But God, we would see the glory of Christ, this one who, who came not to be served, but to serve others, to wash feet, to die on the cross, to be raised up, who serves us even now, standing before the Father in perfect righteousness and holiness on our behalf. God, we thank you for the gift of service. God, may our service be empowered by your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maybe seat it. Home Alone is a stupid movie. I mean, the whole concept just makes me angry. And every time I watch it or my kids watch it, I find myself just being irritated by the whole concept. I mean, a family leaving for the airport, leaving a kid at home, getting to the airport, making it through security, finding themselves on an airplane, even headed to another country, only to find out one of their kids is at home. Like that ever happens. <laughs> now, I say that so often around Christmas time. And I was saying it a few weeks ago in my home, and one of my family members turned to me as I was just going off about how this is a stupid movie and this could never happen. One of my family members in a very sarcastic tone turned to me and said, yeah, like that could never happen in our family. <laughs> and I realized all of these years my hypocrisy in critiquing this movie because it dawned on me all of the times that the Haskins have left kids in different places. Like the time we left Titus at church in Lexington. We all left and we went to the ball field. And after playing, I think, even two games that day, <laughs> I looked down on my phone and see a text from Pastor Nate Bevere. We have Titus. <laughs> and I called him because I was freaking out and looking at Danae. Did you not get Titus? I didn't get Titus. And he said, yeah, we found him by the church sign down by the road waiting for you to come back and get him. And I thought about the time just a few years ago where uh, we had something on a Sunday night here and we all gathered at Wendy's over here on North Keeneland and we had a great time of fellowship and we leave and Danae and I were in two different cars with what we thought was the whole family and each filled in each car and we get home and I look at her and she looks at me and it kind of dawns on us, where's Jonah? <laughs> we left him at Wendy's. 
And I called John Martin, who lived in this area, and said, go, don't ask any questions. Just go get Jonah right now. And he found him standing outside of Wendy's, not panicked, because it happens often to him. <laughs> said, I knew somebody was going to come back and get me. And I think it was just last year, the, the kids were at swim practice at the Y, and Jonah was playing basketball. And we all get home, and I think it had been an hour. Danae and I were getting ready. We were going out to eat, just her, uh, me and her, and, and we're, we're, everybody's just gathered around. The, some kids are fixing themselves food, and, and, and we just sort of happened to say, where's Jonah? We left him at the Y. And so we raced back over to the Y to get him. So I realized all of this time, we're the home alone family. <laughs> That that could happen to us. We could get into a whole uh, another country and realize that we are missing one of our children. And this is despite the fact that even just a few years ago, when we would we would have one car and we would all get into, we would make them count out uh, who all was present. And Titus would begin one, and then it was Nate two, and then Isaac three, Anna four. Chorus 5, and, and I think we would just get tired by that point of listening, and so Jonah was 6, and so we would just sort of doze off, I guess, when we got to him, and that's how we kept forgetting him. But we would have them count, and even now, like, Danae will text me who she's got, and, and sometimes we even summarize. She's like, I got the three bad ones, I left the three good ones with you, and we know exactly who fits into those Category. She actually did that last week when she left church. But we're a family with six kids, and we're always counting in our minds. I got home from the BAM breakfast yesterday, and I was looking around my house, and it, it threw me off because usually it's the boys together and the girls together. And so in my mind, I'm just counting that there were four people in the house but it was three boys and one girl, which didn't fit right in my mind. And because there were only four together, the way my mind works, I thought the two girls were gone. And so I even texted Kristen McDowell, are the girls at your house? Because she lives down the road. She texts back, no. And I'm sitting there looking right at Anna, going, this doesn't make any sense to me. Oh, yeah, she's here and Jonah's playing. Okay, that makes sense. But we're always trying to keep track. We're always trying to make sure everyone's accounted for. And, and when we look at the book of Acts, that's exactly what the Spirit does throughout the book of Acts. The Spirit is moving through this book full steam ahead. The gospel is being taken to the ends of the earth and, and people are getting on board. There are hordes and hordes and multitudes of people who are joining the church and, and you'll see the Spirit stop and even count. In Acts chapter 2, there were 2,000 people. And then by the time we get to four and five, there's 5,000 people. And then that number multiplies. And by the time we get to our text today, there's 20,000 believers in the context of the church. But as you read and you see the big picture, what the Spirit does is as so many people are moving toward the church, as the gospel is moving towards the ends of the earth, the Spirit stops and says, okay, let's account for everyone. And so throughout, you see worship services. 
You see business meetings. You, you see the church sending out missionaries to make sure everything's in order and everything is accounted for. You, you see the church turning around and making sure everyone's needs are met. That's why you have folks selling property and homes and possessions. So to make sure everyone in the church is accounted for financially and materially. And here in Acts chapter 6, that's another work of the Spirit when we come to this issue of deacons. You, you, you see the office of deacon is to make sure everyone is accounted for by the power of the Spirit. And, and normally we think about deacons in the context of the church, and it, it's just this office. It's just these men who have influence. Sometimes we don't even know what, what, who they are and what, what they do. But, but what we see in the book of Acts is the office of deacon, the, the service of deacon at this point, before it's an office, is a sign from God that he cares and loves his church. We, we see all of these signs in Acts. In chapter 1, Jesus promised the Spirit would come and, and they would be full of power to proclaim the gospel. And then Acts chapter 2, we see the sign of tongues and languages and it leads to proclaiming the gospel to the nations. In chapters 3 and 4, we, we see this sign of healing is present with the church and it leads to proclaiming the gospel. In Acts chapter 4, we see the sign of worship as the church is gathered together. That There is literally an earthquake where God is saying, the church is my sign in the world that I am moving, that Jesus is Lord, that this gospel is true. In Acts chapter 5, we see this sign of the apostles on stand before the court of men, standing in boldness, preaching the gospel as a sign that Jesus is present. Their, their fierce boldness is a sign. In Acts chapter 6, we see the sign of deacon. And all of these signs lead to more preaching of the word, lead to more boldness. And so we see deacons leads to boldness. But first of all, in our text, we see growth and gossip. Notice verse 1. Now in the days when the disciples were increasing in number, we just said that the followers of Christ who have believed the gospel and joined the church is probably at this point and has multiplied and grown to probably 20,000 people in and around Jerusalem. But as this number grows, notice there is a complaint, literally a, a murmuring or a murmuring or, or a muttering, a grumbling. Even the, the Greek word here, it, it, it's gongud, which just, just means to sound an annoying sound in the context of the church. And it's a complaint which leads to gossip by the Hellenists. Now, these were Jews who had taken on Greek culture. Many of them were descendants of exiles, and they spoke the Greek language. And many of them had come back to the center of Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. They had believed the gospel, and many of them are staying in and around Jerusalem for the church. And what we see here with the Hellenist Jews believing the gospel, there is a transition in Jerusalem from the Jew to the Greek. That there is a bridge. They bridge this gospel moving to the nation. But notice what the complaint is and who it's against. It arose against the Hebrews. Now these would be the purest. Many of them would have been Pharisees or those that practiced Judaism who had believed the gospel. 
Many of them would have been better off. They would have had family close by because they lived there. They, they, they would have had their financial needs met as opposed to the Hellenist Jews. But, but notice it is a complaint because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution or daily ministry. And, and so what's going on is the church is giving their money so that everybody's needs are met. And now you have the Hellenist Jews who are a part of the community, but they're kind of outcast. And they're noticing that the Hebrews, their widows, are being taken care of. But the Greek Jews, their widows are being left out. They're not being ministered to. And so there's already tension between these two groups because of their ethnicity and their lifestyle. And now they have reason to bicker. And because the Hebrew widows are being served and the Hellenists are not, what we see happens is a first century prayer line or what's called today a gossip group text. Well, you know Edna's getting food because she's a Hebrew. We're just these Johnny-come-lately Hellenist Greeks. You know, we've always been outsiders. You know, this church is getting too big. You know, there's too many people. We, we need to be smaller. The, the apostles, you know, they're, they're gaining this reputation. They just, they're just, they just think they're too, too big and too famous now to take care of us poor little Greek, Hebrew, or Hellenist widows. And before long, as this murmuring, muttering, clanging spreads throughout the church... You have an entourage coming before the apostles and you have the church, this brand new baby infant church on the verge of a church split. And what we see here is Satan hates the church. We've seen that throughout Acts. He is lashed back through persecution. He is lashed back through having the apostles in prison. He is lashed back through leaders in the church lying. And the Spirit keeps moving through. And now all of a sudden you see Satan lashing back against church growth through gossip, through just whining and complaining. That's why a lot of times around here when people start gossiping, whining, and complaining, I usually say, well, that's a sign of church growth. That's a sign that we're, we're moving, we're doing something. But it is Satan lashing back. And you don't want to be the mouthpiece of Satan speaking against the growth in the church. Satan always uses words to oppose God's work. Jesus is telling a true story in the world. And Satan steps in and he tells a false story. And through words he says, join my kingdom. And a lot of times he will do it through people in the church. Gossip and complaining can be a sign of church growth, but it is a sign of Satan lashing back at the church. And what we have to do as individuals in the church, even a church that's growing, is fight that muttering in our own heart with the word of God and with a word of praise. We don't want our words of complaint to take center stage. But we want our words of praise in light of the gospel to be what is made known. And we have to fight to do that. Instead of saying, wow, we're running out of space in the children's area. And now we've got to walk over to Excel and the slush. Now we've got to, 
we, we, we've got to take, take the kids over there, and it's just so, so miserable every week. Don't you think it's miserable to do that every week? Instead of doing that, we go, isn't it awesome that we can't fit our, our kids back there? Look at all the people here worshiping. Jesus walked to Golgotha with stripes on his back. I can walk to excel <laughs> in rain. That's what we do. We, we, we put our mind in per, our thoughts in perspective with the gospel in light of all that God is doing. Can you believe our BFG has to send off a couple couples, uh, a couple of couples to, to start a new BFG? I mean, I've known them since I was in middle school and we've gone through everything together in life and now they're going across town. I may never see them again. This church is ruining my friendships. And we go, isn't it amazing? God has prepared you to go lead a BFG, to open your home. Praise God. Go do it. I'm going to pray for you. I'm still going to see you on Tuesday like I do every week when we meet for coffee. It'll be fine. Go do it. Look at everything Jesus is doing here. That's how we fight against the word of the serpent. Not... Gosh, we got so many kids in Awana. And now the youth group has to meet on Sunday night. Oh my gosh, it's just, that's awful. That is so awful that we have so many kids. It's just pushing our kids out. I, no, we go, praise God, well, the youth will meet wherever. They're flexible, they're young, they can do whatever. They can meet wherever. And we praise God for those things. And we're careful not to be the mouthpiece of Satan, the muttering, the clamoring in the context of our church. But notice here, we see growth in gossip, and then we see growth in preaching. Notice verse 2, and the twelve summoned the full number of disciples. They, they got everybody together and they said, we have a need, and it is not right that we should give up preaching of the word to serve tables. Literally, it's not right before God. Now, they're not saying they're too good to serve tables. What they are saying is, is the church or the Spirit has empowered us to witness the gospel and look around at all the, the Spirit is doing, look around at all of this growth. It wouldn't be right for us to stop proclaiming Christ to serve tables. It wouldn't be right to do it. It's not beneath them. It just wouldn't be right in light of the mission of the church. And, and this concept of serving tables here, it's literally the word serve means to work or, or minister. And this word, it's the word where we get the, the term deacon, which means uh, from the dust. The, the word serve here means from the dust. And when it refers to a deacon, it refers to someone who all you see is the dust because they're so busy serving. They're working so hard. All you see is the dust behind them from the dust. And here they say it's not right for us to leave the preaching to go serve the tables. The tables they refer to here would have been tables where food was given out or money was given out to meet needs. And it's an administrative role. We need someone to, to, to take care of the logistics of that. But they're not saying, I want to be very clear, that they're too good to do this. Think about it. It would have been really easy for John and Peter to go, 
I'm tired of being thrown in jail. I'm tired of being beaten. I'll serve tables for a little while. You know, I like visiting with Margaret. I, I like not being seen, seen and known when I go out in public as the, the, the sort of rebel rouser preacher. And, and after all, we are so large now. I mean, it would be easy for them to say, no, let's go serve tables. But there is a conscious decision here that, that the word must be preached and it begins with leaders. And, and that's important because a lot of times in the context of a church, it's the leader who doesn't make this conscious decision. And a lot of times in the context of the church, it's the pastor who's scared to make the preached word the shepherding with the Word of God central because he's scared to lose his job. He's fearful of what others may say. He's just a lazy preacher. What does he do? He only works one day of the week. Can he come over and visit? Can he, can he take care of... What? And a lot of times, it's the preacher who is fearful to say, I can't be there and do all of those things because he's fearful he may be fired at the next business meeting. But, and a lot of times... It's the pastor who's just bad at delegation, which is, which is me. When, when I was first in ministry in Alabama at Raleigh Avenue Baptist Church, I, I don't, I'm very consumed with details. And so I'll walk in, in here or anywhere else and I'll notice all of the flaws of a building. And I walked into the youth area and it was like the, the tile floor there had not been cleaned in a hundred years. And so I, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to strip and wax these floors. I'm going to figure out how to use a buffer, and I'm going to strip and wax these floors. And, and I waxed the youth area floors, and then I said, you know what? The rest of this church, these floors are nasty. And I started just moving from area to area in the church. And, and I'll never forget, Pastor David uh, walked in one Saturday and said, what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm cleaning the floors. And I was very prideful. You know, like, I'm going to get a raise now. I'm going to my day off, waxy. He said, you are in sin. I said, what? He said, you don't get paid to strip and wax floors. You get paid to be a pastor. You get paid to, to know the word of God and to shepherd. You need to be visiting some students. You need to be out doing pastoral work, not stripping and waxing floors. We got deacons who can do that. And, and, and I was rebuked in that moment. But, but I still struggle with that. I, I still struggle even walking in here because there are so many things like filling the baptistry and doing things where I just say, I can do it better than y'all. <laughs> I know more about that than y'all do. And, and I have to have a conversation with myself that I had to have with Danae. We, we have six kids, as you know now. And uh, early on, we said, if an animal can be trained to do this, then our kids can be trained to do it. So we said, you're going to wash dishes, you're going to clean your clothes, and you're going to fold your laundry, and you're going to do things around the house. I said, Danae, if you do all of this, you're never going to be able to do anything else. We've got to train these kids to do it. And she would say, do you know how hard that's going to be? I'm going to have broken dishes, broken glasses. There's no telling where the clothes are going to be, and it's true. We never know where their clothes are going to be put. But, but, but I said, yeah, and if we don't train them to do that, we're going to raise six losers and you're going to be miserable. And your role as a mom 
is going to be squelched. And she's done a fantastic job of training our kids. But the same thing goes on in the church. If the pastor is doing everything, then the church becomes a group of selfish losers who never grow up. It is important that the whole body be empowered to serve and that the pastor is focused on equipping with the Word of God, the ministry, the service in the context of the church so that everyone is using their gifts and the body is growing up strong together in unity together. When the leader makes the word the priority, the church is empowered, equipped, and even free to serve, which leads to more growth. And so notice verse 3, therefore the brothers picked out from, he says, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. First of all, the qualifications for these men that will later become deacons, they must be above reproach, which means no accusation can be brought against them. And I always say what that word means is any accusation, even from your greatest critic, not just that your, your wife says you're great, but people who hate you, you're working so that there is no true accusation that they may bring against you. They may bring accusation against you. But notice, they're to be full of the Spirit. And what we see in the book of Acts, being full of the Spirit, is that they boldly proclaim Jesus. And we're going to see that next week with Stephen, who is stoned for boldly proclaiming Jesus. And they must be full of wisdom. They must, be have, they must have self-control. They, they, in their speech, there must be self-control. They live with fear and reverence before God in all of life. And notice they're going to point to this duty, this business, this, this role of making sure this activity in the church is taken care of. Now, this role here will eventually become an official office of deacon in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, where we see qualifications and characteristics. But notice here, this isn't just picking some good guys, which is what happens a lot in the church. When you think about deacons, well, oh, Bob, he's a good guy. He needs to be a deacon. No, these are people, these are men full of the Holy Spirit of God, God-fearing, proclaiming the gospel. It's not a popularity contest. You don't look around the church and think, who should be deacons? The most popular people, like we're back in high school. That, that's not the way it works either. And, and they're not formed as some thugocracy. They don't appoint themselves. They're appointed by the church. They're not those in the context with the most money or who are the loudest or who are the meanest or who've been around the longest. They are appointed by the Spirit of God and the church recognizes that. And notice, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole congregation. The congregation isn't fighting with this. They're not kicking back. You know, Paul or, or John and Peter and eventually Paul, they have all the gifts. They have all the leadership ability. We want them to wait tables. No, they're okay with this decision. And notice the apostles say we will devote, we will commit, we will set ourselves apart to the preaching of the word. And it's communicated here as this act of preaching is an act of worship. And it's saturated here with prayer. In Acts, the church demonstrates its dependency upon the Spirit through prayer over and over again. 
And here, the apostles say, we will be on the front lines of praying. We're going to give ourselves over to prayer. And, and we see how, the, how Satan is lashing back at the church. And there's a target on the back of the apostles. And they're saying, we have to be men saturated in doing battle with the evil one in prayer. But notice again, the word ministry is used. And, and again, it's the work of preaching. It's the work of preaching. It's not just an act. It's not just a thing. It's not a talent or a skill. All those, those things are involved. It's work. It's work. And a lot of times people think, you know, being able to speak in front of people is just a gift. It's just a talent. It's just something you do. Like, what do you do? You, you only work for an hour and a half every week. What do you do? And yet, here it's communicated, this is work. By the way, it's been researched that preaching one sermon is worth eight hours of manual labor. The reason why is you are spiritually engaged. You are emotionally engaged. You've prepared for this moment. You're standing. You are working as you preach. You, you, you are giving yourself over to this task of studying, being ready to apply the Word of God to the church. Charles Spurgeon once said, If any man will preach as he should, his work will take more out of him than any other labor under heaven. I should be worn out, flat, exhausted every Sunday afternoon. And I normally am. Ask my BFG. Sometimes they walk up to me and go, Are you Are you okay? I'm exhausted. Give yourself over to the work. But notice it pleased the whole congregation. You see, it's one thing for me to say that the preaching of the Word should be central in my role. It's another thing for you to say, yes, that's true. That's what we want. We want our pastor working to preach the Word. We want our pastor given over to that task. I'm not going to make my complaints and my preferences central because I don't want to take away from that task. I want him given over to that task week after week after week, shepherding even throughout the week, shepherding with the Word of God, praying for the needs of the congregation. How can the Word of God be, be applied to those needs week after week? I want you given over to that. You know, one of the great things about being here is that there's all kinds of ministry that goes on that I don't even know about. And if I knew about it, it would stress me out. It would stress me out to know some of the ministry that you do throughout the week. I would be worried. Are they, what, what are they doing? Why are they doing that? Why didn't they tell me about that? There, there's times where I show up at the hospital and BFG leaders turn to me and say, why are you here? Well, I'm the pastor. Well, I'm the BFG leader. They called me. They told me not to call you. Go back and preach and pray. And, and there are times here where I'm doing things and Glenn will turn to me and say, go home. Why are you here? And, and, and it's got to be the culture in the church where they say, you're given over to that and we're okay with it. And that's what we see here. Unity is preserved because the church says the preached word is the priority. And, and think about what happens as the word is preached. Conflicts are being dealt with right now. Heart issues are being dealt with in this moment that can't happen even in one-on-one -on -one counseling sessions. 
That, that, that can't happen. The, you, you see discipleship needs being met. Even right now, families are being shaped by the Word of God. That, that there's all kinds of needs being met through the preaching of the Word in these moments that is daunting, that keeps me up at night, that, that stresses me out. Worried, am I saying the right thing? Is this word going to address those things? But a healthy church happily gives their pastor over to that task. And notice how they do it. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Now, all of these men here are Greeks. Now, realize where the complaint came from. It's very well that these men could have been the ones bringing the complaint before the apostles. And they turned around and said, okay, we're not just going to complain. We're going to take care of it. And we're going to send you and we're going to appoint you to do this. And they set them before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on him. And here we see the beginnings of what we call ordination, where men are set apart to a specific task. But, but I want you to know something before we move on. The, the solution to the problem of waiting and serving tables and taking care of those administrative things wasn't minimalistic. It wasn't, all oh, get somebody to do that. No, these men are set apart to be servant leaders in the congregation. I mean, taking care of widows and orphans is what James calls pure and undefiled religion. And so this isn't a menial task. We want to select the leaders in our congregation who are model servants to take care of this. And then notice what happens. And the Word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. What happens when the church says, here's deacons? The Word moves forward. And so the, the preaching ministry, the deacon ministry, leads to mission. The church expands. The church didn't hiccup and say, we're just too big to meet everybody's needs. Let's stop growing. No, they said, how are we going to meet needs so we can grow more? And notice the word expands and grows and multiplies to the point that you have priests. Notice another transition in Jerusalem. Now you have Jewish leaders in the temple who are coming to faith in Christ. Another people group that's being added to the church. And what we see here is the church is organically forming around the preached Word. And one of the ways the Spirit does that is through deacons. That's why moving forward, our deacons here cannot squelch ministry. They will not squelch ministry. They won't. We don't have deacons who do that now, and I don't anticipate that ever happening. No, they cultivate ministry. They, they prompt ministry. And deacons who prompt complaints instead of ministry are joining forces with Satan to hinder the church. Deacons are to be seen in the context of the church as shock absorbers. We're moving on and they step in and keep us from bottoming out. No, they push us along in the context of the church. They facilitate and serve for the sake of growth. 
So when we sit around and we say, we have space needs. We have bathroom needs. We, we have growth needs in the context of the church. Deacons can't be the ones who go, well, we just don't have enough money. Maybe we don't have enough money. But they say, despite the fact we don't have enough money, we're going to figure this out. Because we want to grow. That's what they want. That's what their role that's what their role does in the context of the church. They're saying, how can we do it? And, and they serve as a model of service. Some of us in hearing about deacons are going, thank the Lord. It's all on the deacons. The deacons are the servants. I've been wondering who serves around here. What's deacons? Where are they? No, they are models in the congregation that lead us to serve. We watch them serve. There are things in the context of the church that I shouldn't know about ministry that goes on and the deacons shouldn't have to worry about going on because it just happens and you turn to them and say, yeah, you're the one that, that prompted me to serve in this way because all I can see when I watch you is dust because you're serving so much. And you encourage me to serve in that way. And, 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 and yet, when there are problems of growth, they step in and they say, how can we think about mission? Notice in the book of Acts, mission is always the solution to every problem. Persecution, the Spirit moves us to focus on mission, the growth of the church. Division, lying spirit in the church, we move to focus on mission. Here, there's complaining in the church. Deacons cause us to focus on mission. That's what deacons do. How can we accelerate the mission of the church? And they lead us to think this way. The degree that we complain is usually a good barometer to the degree that we are not sacrificially serving. Think about that. You are going to be more prone to complain and nitpick things in the church when you're not serving. It's the same thing that goes on with that parent in the stand who's watching his kid play sports. And he's sitting on, in the stands and, oh, that coach is so stupid. I can't believe he made that decision. Why did he take my little foo-foo out and put that little not very good player in? I mean, that coach just, just does not know what he's doing. Has he ever coached before? And you sit in the sidelines and you nitpick. Why? Probably because you've never sat in that chair and you've never seen things from that perspective. And the same thing goes on in the church. When you're not serving, you're more prone to just nitpick things that go on. And the way we address our nitpicky complaining is we plug in and serve. Now, every complaint is not bad as long as you're looking for a solution for growth. And so you ask yourself the question, if I was busy serving, would I even notice this concern? If I was plugging away serving, would I even notice that problem that has just captivated me? Is this concern because I'm not serving and because I'm not serving, I'm focused on myself? How does this legit complaint fit into our big picture of mission? Is the way that I'm going about this complaint hindering others from serving? Am I pushing my concern in a way that steals the joy from others who are serving? 
Maybe at times, if you were the leader, you would do things differently. But you look in and you say, well, I would do it differently, but it sure isn't keeping us from reaching more people. So I'm going to keep my mouth shut. Am I calling attention in a way that's hindering the work of the church? Is my complaint weighing others down? Is it stealing joy from others? And then you get to the end and you go, am I as passionate about this concern as I am about reaching more people for Jesus? And it puts your complaint in perspective of mission. The degree in which you are not serving is probably the degree in which you are grumbling and complaining. So often people bring concerns to us around here. I hear Clay say it all the time, and I say it. We look at people and we go, hey, relax. Just relax and just serve. Just serve. Just plug in and just serve, and it'll work it out, work itself out. And so often what I notice is people think that's a minimalistic response to the problem. You think we're just trying to get you, you know, like a little nap. Quit. Stop. We're not. We're calling you to deal with your heart issue and to see the glory of serving that will overwhelm your complaints. Most problems, that is the solution. But I'm fearful that you hear this. When we say just serve, you're saying just be a servant. Just be a servant. Really? Just serve. Really? And it's kind of the same thing that we think about when we think about pastor and deacon. We think about the office of pastor, and we spend a lot of time thinking about it and calling our pastors, and, and, and we spend a lot of time thinking about that office and, and revering that office. But when we think about deacons, we go, they're not pastors, they're just servants. They're just servants. And, and it's why I'm noticing in the context of men who are called to the ministry, they're actually called to be deacons, but a lot of times they're pursuing ministry because they think deacon is a lesser role. We're not going to do that around here. One of the things we do to our ministry students is when they whine and complain about all the things we give them to do, is we say, hey, look at John Martin and look at Kyle and Kyle Wells and notice all the things they do around here. You're not even close, buddy. And they're deacons. They're deacons. You think you're too good to do that? Our deacons are put on a pedestal as models of servants. It's not a lesser role. And moving forward, we will continue to do the same thing around here. And don't ever say about our deacons here, they're just servants. They're just servants. Would you say that about Jesus? Would you say, Jesus is just a servant? The man who said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Would you say, just a servant? No. You would say, yes, a servant. An amazing servant who had all authority and all power at his hand, at his disposal, and yet he did not use it for his own benefit. He, he, he became a man and not just a man, a slave and a curse on a cross. And he died for the sins of the church. And now he is raised and he is seated at the right hand, full of glory, full of, uh, of praise. And he will be forever and ever just a servant. You know, Jesus has a lot of complaints against the church. 
any complaint that you would bring and say, I just don't like this. Jesus would say, oh, I got a lot of things I don't like about the church. And yet he shed his blood for the church. And he's still, by the power of his spirit, serving his church. Even through deacons and others who would say, I'm just a servant. 